Uh, you've just entered the, uh, the law offices of Quibble Squabble and Bicker. If you've come for actual legal advice, you need to turn right around, honey. You need to get out of here, because you ain't going to get none of that. They quibble, and they squabble, and they bicker. But if you want to hear meaningless opinions, this is the right place. They got plenty of that. Stuff that makes no sense at all. They go off on tangents. It's crazy talk. If that's your thing, keep listening. They'll keep talking. Oh no no, oh no no, it's another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. You've entered the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. Welcome back to the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker on this February 10th, 2021. Today we have an incredibly special guest. His name is Scott Page. He was a, a longtime instrumentalist sax player. He's performed with Supertramp, Toto, Pink Floyd, even Corey Feldman. He's got the whole realm of individuals that he's performed with over the years. Corey. And um, and not only that, he will be helping us as guest counsel for our client, Monty Python Snake. So that being the case, welcome to our humble abodes, thank, Mr. All, Page. Thank you very, very much for having me on your show. What an intro. And it's funny you mentioned Corey, right? <laughs> yeah, Corey's a friend of mine, a great guy. He's actually a really nice dude. And I played with him for quite a few years, done m multiple of his records and things. And uh, he's really actually a really nice dude. Great guy. Is he one of the most talented musicians you've ever played with, would you say? <laughs> Uh, who who would I say that would be? Corey. Oh, no, I, well, Corey's good. You know, he's an actor too. He's a he's a he's a good musician, but mostly, you know, he's been an actor and kind of that's his side, his secondary thing that he does with his band. He's a lot of pretty interesting songs and stuff that he does. Always, but he's yeah, Corey's cool. No, I, since we've already gone right into it, just out of curiosity, how did you get connected to him? I mean, you're kind of in diverging industries. Well, it was actually through Pink Floyd. Um, we were at Universal. We were playing. A, we were a show in law in Los Angeles at Universal, and then after the show, they have you know, there's usually the after show party, you know, in the the, the VIP room. But then there's the VIP. There's always the VIP VIP room, right? Which is the secondary room. Um, so we were, that's kind of where the band, we were all hanging and Corey's a big Floyd fan. Mm. And so he was there that night we met and then he was doing his record myself, John Karen, the keyboard player. Uh, we both played on his record. He invited us to play on his album and stuff. And so that kind of how it became, I got to know him. And then I did a handful of events when we went and did the, um, uh, they did the, I think it was, you know, the big reunion of the Goonies. And we flew back to wherever they shot that. I kind of, I, I don't, it's Washington or someplace. That's near us. Uh, it, you know, the place, be, it was like some small and, town. Maybe Astoria, Astoria, Oregon. Yeah. South yeah. That's what, okay. That's yeah. where it was. Yes. And yeah. so we, um, we flew there with Dick Donner, the director and the whole cast of the Goonies. And we did a whole thing. And then we did a live show there that, that day. So yeah, that was kind of a, I, I, I talked to Corey all the time. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're um, amongst uh, not only music royalty, but Hollywood royalty as well. Ah. At least, you know, the baronets. <laughs> the baronets. There you go. So, uh, you know how ubiquitous your sax is, how many people you played with it. Just last night, me and Matt were doing karaoke on Zoom, and some guy just picked a song that he sung before, and Matt's like, oh, this is one of Scott's sax solos. Like, oh, that's funny. Chances are you hear a song from that period. You're gonna yeah, hear it, was, your it was Dogs of War from Pink Floyd. Somebody oh, yeah. yeah. Great solo, by the way. Night. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, that was a 
that was a fun that was my first introduction really to Pink Floyd at any kind of level because you know it's funny before that I you know I studied as a musician my 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 background was really more in R&B and rock and so I was a big junior walker and you know listening to the jazz guys Fathead Newman Lockjaw Davis all those guys but didn't really pay much attention to Floyd I didn't really know anything about it and so it was interesting uh, we were doing a Super Tramp record and Dave Gilmore came in solo it, it was a guest on the album so I got to know Dave a little bit that day and then he came to a gig that I was doing that night and hung out at the bar. Was this we the were, Brother Where Are You Bound album? The Brother Where You Bound album, right. Okay. And then um, I think it was Brother Where You Bound. I believe that was the one that he played on. I think it is. Yeah, I think it was. I forget. We did. I did three albums with them. So I think that was the one. But um, so uh, I invited Dave down to this gig and a week later I was doing this big event. He came to that. And then a couple of days later, I got a call. Uh, he called. I got a call to go put, you know, to play on the album. So that's where I did the dogs of war, the dogs of war song. And so, but it was so funny because I really didn't know anything about Pink Floyd to be truthful, hundred percent. I mean, I, you said you're a rock guy. How could you not know about Pink well, Floyd? That was, that's kind of more of that acid rock kind of, you know, ethereal stuff. I was okay. more, you know, I was really, I would say more rock. I mean, more R and B cause you know, saxophone players a little bit more in that space. And I was playing rock, you know, but wasn't really into that type of music. And so, when so I you weren't a hippie. I wasn't a hippie in that sense. So I went and played on the record and that was cool. And I was happy and I came back and then I told a friend of mine, I said, by the way, you know, I, I played on this Pink Floyd record. And they're like, what? Oh, you played on a Floyd record. And I said, wow, yeah, cool. And then what happened was is after that, a couple of days later, Dave Gilmore called me up and said, we're taking, putting the band all back together again. Would you want to join the band? And we're going to go out and do this tour for a couple of years, right? And I was like, well, let me think about it. Because again, I didn't really know anything about Floyd. So I ended up calling my friends up and saying, I got this call. You know, I played on this Floyd record. Oh, cool. That's really cool. And they said, uh, and then I got called. This guy, Dave Gilmore, called me up to uh, kind of go do this tour with him. But I got to wait for you. Dude, you got to do that. And I said, dude, I don't have any idea. I know nothing about Pink Floyd. So that night, I remember going to Tower Records and buying a, buying a bunch of the records, bringing them back home, listening to that night. And then um, I took the gig. And boy, am I glad I did. Let's put it so that this way. like 1985 or so? 84? That was 85, 86. Yeah, someplace okay. right in there, 85, 86. Yeah. So at that point, you had never heard Dark Side of the Moon. You'd nope. never heard... <laughs> Welcome nope. to the machine. Wow. None of that. The only song I kind of remembered was funny because I remember when I when people said Pink Flight, I kind of remembered that Have a Cigar song. Okay. Right. So I said, Oh yeah, I remember there was a song Have a Cigar. I kind of remember that Pink Floyd. Yeah. That was basically all I knew. And I had no idea of this magnitude of that band. I mean, it's you know, I mean, from a branding and the the worldwide, that band is incredible. I mean, that brand, every country in the world, it it penetrates at a high yeah, level. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. Super Tramp and, and Toto are huge, huge bands, but Pink Floyd's just an entirely different level. Yeah, it's like, of... you know, again, I, Super Tramp was very kind of Floydy in the sense because it's such original kind of uh, albums. You know, they made yeah. albums, real story kind of telling things. And so, Yeah, they were like a progressive rock Progressive band. rock kind yeah. of band, yeah. So it was very interesting playing with both of those bands. I'm very, very thankful, I got to tell you. It's been, it was a great, incredible experiences. Yeah. So did they have the flying pig with that tour. We had the flying pig, man. We did. I actually have videos of myself inside that pig because it used to have a hole, and I crawled wow. in one day once they filled it up, and I brought my camera inside. So I have actually have videos of the of the pig inside. Well, that's the pig. actually a, a claim to fame. That should really be like more of a tagline for you. Yes, yeah, because I mean, how many inside people pig. do you think have actually inside been inside pig. that pig? Yep, and, and flown around with it. You know, that's yep. like a very niche group of yep. people. 
Yeah. <laughs> plant your flag on that one. So your dad was uh, in the Lawrence Welk show way back when. I came across a couple of videos of his actually on YouTube. Oh, which yeah. I'm sure you've seen where he's oh, played yeah. like 11 or 14 instruments or something like that. Oh yeah. So is that kind of how you got into, cause you're a multi-instrumentalist as well. You play what? The, the I double, flute, I saxophone. Double. I play flute, you know, saxophone, guitar. So my main double is saxophone and guitar. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so growing up in that environment, is that where you picked up playing instruments or was that oh, something yeah. you I mean, tried to avoid? Well, it was beginning. funny. I wasn't, you know, well, I grew up, obviously my dad was on that, in that band for, um, I think 14 years, I think 14 or 15 years. So that was my whole childhood was, you know, being around early television. Cause that was, you know, the Lawrence Welk show was one of the, was the variety show that was on at that time. One of the biggest shows on television. It was, you know, there was only seven channels in those days. Right. Remember? Uh, yeah. That so many? Yeah. There was that many. I mean, it was like, I think it was, let's see, we had two, four, five, seven, nine and 11 and 13, whatever that is. It's dependent upon which metropolitan area you were in. <laughs> you were, you're talking. Or, but, you know, I grew up on that show and I, you know, I played on that show. There's a, uh, you know, so I, actually one of my biggest claim to fame is I'm the only guy that ever played in Lawrence Welk and Pink Floyd. So there you go. That's a, and wow. was in a flying pig yeah, and, and, and have inside the pig. <laughs> uh you weren't jewish or anything would have been no 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 okay, no good. no yeah. uh but yeah so i grew up on that and my dad being a musician I, I actually wasn't really interested in music when i was a kid i did take up and played trumpet when i was younger but it was more of a i did it and you know played in the school bands and things my dad kind of encouraged me to kind of keep playing but i i studied to be uh um I really focused on being a uh, an architect i wanted so i was into drafting and you know, and I actually was working for a company called Audiodyne later on before I really got into music in college, um, where I was, you know, drawing exploded views of motors and things like that. And uh, my whole thing was I wanted to be a, a draftsman and architect, but around my dad and then through my dad's career, I, he was a serial entrepreneur. You know, we had boat businesses, lighting businesses, donut business. We had 26 donut shops at one time. We had a candy business. My dad was actually one of the, uh, the, the, the founders, inventors of the Wawa pedal. Cause that was, you know, that's a famous piece, wow. of, piece of gear. Really? Yeah. I, I, I used to have the number one Wawa pedal. So he Wawa. used the Wawa with the, with the saxophone. Well, the very first when my dad started amplified instruments. So he took okay. a hearing aid, and when you flip it around, it's a microphone, right? So he put it on his clarinet and started Amplified Instruments. He went to the Thomas Organ Company, which owned Vox guitars and amps back in the day. And they wanted to, so he sold them on the idea of making basically band instruments amplified. And so he started the first Amplifonic Orchestra and he designed and built out the first tone dividers, you know, all that stuff in the Wawa pedal. And actually here's a little piece of trivia on the Wawa pedal. Uh, my dad did the very first recording with the Wawa pedal and it was called the Wawa doozy and it was d done with a bassoon. Believe Who came up with the name? Uh, what's that? The Wawa pedal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened was, is my dad, if you remember the original Wawa pedal was called the Clyde McCoy Wawa pedal. So oh, my I dad, didn't know that at when all. It, uh, Brad Plunkett was the engineer, was mm -hmm. the actual engineer that uh, built the, built it. My dad wanted his clarinet. Clyde McCoy was a trumpet player and whop, 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 whop. you know, he was wanted to use the, the hand, the Wawa yeah. with this clay. Okay. And he so was my dad said, boy, I'd love to be able to do that with my clarinet. So he said, oh, let me see. So he built this little pedal with a potentiometer and stuff to make it. And I remember my dad bringing it home uh, the first day when they got it run and he brought it home that night. And I remember playing my trumpet through it and uh, in the living room there. And uh, it was just a 
crazy little old organ pedal that they converted into a to the to make it be a to sort of be a Wawa pedal. But uh, yeah, so he developed all that, and we then built. And then the other piece of trivia is is that was what launched Sound City, the studio. I don't know if you're familiar with Sound City. No. Uh, there's a, actually there's a movie that David Grohl from the um, Foo Fighters put out called Sound City. Go check it out. It's one of the you know. There's oh, yeah, actually, that sounds familiar. Now I might have seen that. Yeah, there's a handful of recording studios in the world where a lot of the great records, Abbey Road in Los Angeles, Sound City is considered one of those because all those incredible records came out of there. Uh, you know, all the Fleetwood Mac, Nirvana. I mean, uh, it goes on and on and on. There's just tons of people recording that place. So we built, my dad built that studio and it was originally called the Vox Sound Lab, which mm. is where it was designed and built for him to develop the Amplified Orchestra. And that's where he ended up doing that. Now, was your was your father strictly more like the the uh, lack of a better word sound visionary, and then he had you know engineers, or was he? Oh well, yeah, he worked with an engineer. Yeah, he was yeah. working. He brought the idea to them. They basically hired him to come in and work with the engineers to develop the idea because he wasn't an engineer. You know, he was more of a you know kind of inventory kind of guy. You know, that right. was, well that's cool. I mean, it's cool that. You know, people that have those kind of visions, like Steve Jobs has always impressed me as that kind of guy. Like he couldn't build a cell phone, but no. he knew what he wanted out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was sort of what your dad was doing. That's interesting. I was wondering if that Tom Scholes from Boston ever gave your dad credit for, uh, you know, inspiring him in any way. Well, yeah, Scholes was interesting. One, was a cool. major inventor. Of, oh, yeah, big time. And he built, I mean, I remember getting his first, like, what was, I can't remember what it was, the guitar little box that you could plug into man i remember the first time i got that and put that on you could play your guitar it was like man that was inventive very inventive at that time yeah greg you're about to say something oh did your dad become a millionaire from this did he hold the no patent? no no of course not you, <laughs> you know, get from the donuts the greg you know when you're oh, working the... for a big company like that it's just it was just the idea and all that but it was uh it was fascinating time because again it was built for wind instruments not for guitars originally and then so he was like the guy who created the chicken nuggets or something you know it's like he gives the whole idea to the corporation and doesn't really get a lot of credit there, for it that's it yeah it's, that's how it works you know man i can't think of a better analogy than wawa pedal and chicken nuggets yeah, it's perfect they you look the same it. I don't know how I, I wish it was. People that. stand on chicken nuggets all the time. They stand yep. on Wawa pedals. It all At least fits got together. And for a little while, he had success in that field. Yep. Do the Wawa pedals go good with barbecue sauce, or is it more? <laughs> they go very mustard? good with barbecue sauce. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's very like greasy. That. It's, that's why they got that kind of greasy sound, right? You know, all the that <laughs> goes perfect with you know, that kind of. I'm food. sure I've got an amplified chicken nugget around here somewhere. Yep. <laughs> connect that up and we'll listen to those all day long so i'm going to switch off my headphones just do chicken nuggets for ears for my ears nuggets man love those nuggets <laughs> they're so ubiquitous they get around those chicken nuggets and you know back in the 80s apparently you were doing um sax lessons on vhs or something no i was so uh, that's so funny. I don't know if you've seen that edit. Probably. You probably yeah, saw I, saw, I came across the same from Somebody, like seven I, years ago. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I did a, um, they, they were called, uh, what was the name of that company? Uh, anyway, it's, you know, they, they had guitar lessons, sax. It was basically, uh, um, you know, VHS tapes to teach instruments. And I was approached to do a very beginning, simple, very beginning saxophone thing. And I remember I was in the middle of this massive project we were putting on in Las Vegas and I hadn't slept for days and I had to go and I, Oh God, I got to go do this thing. So I went in there and we did this thing and it was, 
it, it wasn't one of my most my my favorite things I've ever done. Let's put it that. I got to say the most remarkable thing about that video was your hairstyle. Oh yeah, man, dude, I had that mullet, man. I had the mullet, right? Yeah, the super <laughs> mullet. That was like I a had the mullet. Super to, mullet. That was and, the mullet to end all mullets, actually. Oh, it was. And it's actually, you know, it was I was actually one of the very early, very few first guys to do that because I I remember I wanted uh, I was working with Diana Ross and I noticed at the time how she moved and her hair was a, would fly on the lights. I said, geez, I need to get, you know, for stage and stuff. I need to grow my hair. But I said, dude, I can't have that hair in my face. I'll go crazy. So I said, oh, I'm just going to grow it out in the back, right? And then that and cast started happening everywhere. But yeah, I had that mullet. It was kind of my thing for many, many, many years. Yep. So never... you're to blame? You're I'm, the I'm actually, I don't know if I'm the blamer, but I'm I'm right there because it was very early. I There was nobody around at the time, and I just thought it would be interesting to do that. And then it just started to come out, right? Kind so of... were those hair extensions or you actually had your hair grown out that long? No, I grew it out, man. I had it down to my... My fanny, there's a down past my butt at one time. It's funny, there's a picture of me playing with Spinal Tap, believe it or not, at Radio City Music Hall. And uh, my hair, I couldn't even believe it. I look at my hair, I'm standing, and it's actually it's down to my butt. Like my hair is longer than I'm this flowing thing. It was crazy. All those crazy wow. kids. You, you may have not been the first mullet, but it sounds like you were the largest mullet. Oh, I had, I had one of the most serious mullets around. Yeah, there's no question. The no mullet question. champion. And you know, what's interesting is people are starting to bring it back. I knew it was going to come back sometime. <laughs> and bring know, those like, back like bell-bottom cool jeans. People are starting to do it now again. It's funny. I, I'm just going to say that down here in the South of Florida, I don't think the mullet ever died. I think the mullet's <laughs> been around. I think it's just now in more urban uh, uh, metropolitan areas. But down here in the South, I think I've seen mullets pretty much the whole time I've lived here. Yeah. Never seem to go out of style. Nope. Yep. Their mullets are around. They're still there. So do you consider your hair to be like one of your specific trademarks? Because you've got an interesting shape going on as well right now. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's basically the same haircut on top, which is out without the back, right? I just like, <laughs> cut it off. I, I'll tell you, when I cut that thing off, I was going, what was I thinking all those years? Because every time you take a shower, you go to bed, you got to braid this giant thing and it takes hours to dry. And now it's like two minutes, I'm dry. I'm like, wow, this is this is living now. Did you ever think about doing cornrows and beads with all that hair? Uh, no, no, I never did any of the cornrows and beads thing. But, you know, I did in the back in the day, which is not so much. I did look like a tropical fish sometimes, though, with my, <laughs> all this color in my hair. I had wacky hair color and stuff that I did. You know, we'd do anything as a musician in those days, right? It was all about the show business, right? Did you ever get a problem like where your hair would get caught in the sax keys in any way? Oh, or? yeah, I've gotten caught a couple. I mean, remember, I was... <laughs> shoot i was i had my boat down in newport and i was going with it with the, with the drill and shit and my hair got caught in this thing it went whoop right up to my head right <laughs> oh <laughs> i was thinking like more where you're on tour performing and like suddenly you're oh i got it's gotten stuck hair. oh yeah sure it's gotten stuck in the horn you know and the keys get wrapped around something you know uh it's part of the you know the trials and tribulations of being a musician you use your hair as like a different finger to move some of the there keys you go. That's you know, it. It's like where a pinky can't reach, just have the hair go down there. And... <laughs> yeah, and I always figured when I had it long, I would say as I start to lose it, I could just wrap it around and stick it on top, you know. <laughs> One of those comb over things, right? I could just go, Whew! put it on. Look like uh, Cousin It. Just That's it. Oh, yeah. I used to, believe me, I used to do that all the time. <laughs> well, you know, we had Leland Sklar on last week, and oh. he definitely did a Cousin It thing with his beard. 
He oh, had yeah, that I love- wrapped up over his front of his face and over the top yeah. of his head. No, I love Leland. Leland's a really good friend of mine and he's awesome, man. He, how about his book? Did you see that book? Oh my God, his book is fantastic. I, I'm actually honored I'm in that book. So I'm actually very happy about that. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, nice. he demanded that we flip him off at the end of our show. Actually. Of course, he's got to have, he's got to have number two. I mean, I, have you seen the book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's so, gigantic. It's, it's like gigantic. a weapon. I, I mean, I, I I didn't even know. Everybody, myself is in there. My sister's in there. And my dad is in there, too. And I haven't been able to find my dad yet. I don't have the book. My sister has it. And we just glanced through it. And I found myself, but we weren't able to find her or my dad yet. There's so many pictures in that thing. Well, Leland will ship it right out to you. You just put oh, your no. message on his I, website. Yeah, I love I love Leland, man. Uh, he's he. I love playing with him. He plays a lot of times with him in my Hang Dynasty. We have this band called the, the Hang Dynasty with him and Jeff Baxter from the Doobies, myself, and you know, just different guys. Either Greg Bissonette or we've had Jim Keltner playing drums, and you know, it's kind of a fun band we've been doing for thirty years. And it's uh, we 30 years. Wow. So this is just like a, a jam band. It's because yeah, it's a thing. Time. We just call it the hang dynasty. And we, we only really do, you know, you know, two, three gigs a year kind of thing. And, but they're mostly big corporate gigs. You know, we would do it for Microsoft, you know, it's kind of an all-star. I bring the tower of power horns nice. along with that band. Edgar winter plays with the band also. Okay. So, so we cover- go out and we do these sort of, you know, pseudo all-star kind of band things for big corporate events which is nice because they write big checks. We love them. <laughs> is yeah, it a no. cover or is it originals? Uh, we play, you know, we play, we probably play stuff because, you know, we got Jeff, uh, you know, we got Baxter from the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan. So we'll do some of those. And then you got Scalar, you know, doing, we'll do some Phil Collins or something. And, you know, we just kind of break it in. Edgar Winters there. We'll do a few of his tunes. And then the other guys, uh, Kenny, uh, uh, Kenny Lewis, who is the, Steve Miller from Steve Miller's band. So we'll do some Steve Miller tunes. And so it's just kind of a, it's covers of stuff that we've all been part of. So you've been floating around in this industry. When I say floating around, you've been in- integrally involved in this industry for essentially most of your life. Pretty much all my life, you know, being around my dad and yeah. Is there anybody that you get starstruck by? Anybody you've come across and you've kind of gone, wow, I'm like, like there's a surreal moment that you're talking to this person. Yeah, but it's probably not anybody, anybody more. For me, it's been not so much out of the music business. Uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle, I don't know. I'm a big, my whole thing is conscious is my favorite subject. So when I saw him for the first time, I was pretty starstruck. Uh, but, you know, again, I've been very fortunate to have been around a lot of very unique, very interesting people because of this, the things that I've done, you know, with bands I played with. Um, you know, one of the, I think one of the most interesting things was we did a with Supertramp, we did a Royal Command performance at the Royal Albert Hall for Lady Di and Charles. And wow. so we got to meet them and she was extraordinary to to see in person. I mean, you'd see her in pictures and she always looked good and everything else. But when you saw her in person, she was like, I mean, she was so beautiful and just something mag, just incredible about her presence you know was amazing definitely her and then the other one which was i was really fascinated by was when i got called to go play with diana ross i went and did a small you know eight week tour with her and she blew my mind i mean she was probably one of my biggest mentors uh and especially by that's why i grew my hair was because of actually her but she was there was something so you didn't about go the her. Michael Jackson route and start getting like uh, plastic no, no, surgery I didn't to go, look like Diana Ross. No, I didn't do all that kind yeah, of. Yeah, we don't want you to do a blackface, man. That would no, be no. I, I didn't do yeah. any of that. Uh, okay, good. But she was, you know, incredible stage person. She had things that she did. I learned so much from her. I mean, she. It's really funny because you wouldn't, 
you know, Diana Ross here, I'm a saxophone player, but she was actually one of the people that taught me a lot of, a lot about show business in the sense of performance and what she would do. And I studied her very closely and watched all her actions. Cause I, when I walked in the first time to rehearsals, I remember I couldn't take my eyes off her for some reason here. I've worked with a lot of celebrities, but there was just something that was so, she had such a magnetism about her that was just unique to anybody that I'd seen. So she was very, very interesting. How did you initially uh, get introduced to Diana Ross? Um, you know, again, playing at, in those days, I, you know, this was prior to Floyd and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Super Tramp, actually. Um, I got, um, you know, it's all in those days, it was really word of mouth amongst the musicians. So, you know, I knew the guitar player and they needed to somebody. And so the guitar player recommended me. So it was always word of mouth recommended through the, you know, through your community of musicians. And so people that would play and, and then other times like Supertramp came out of, for me, working out of, uh, I played a club gig in Los Angeles every Sunday and Monday night. It was kind of a place, uh, and we had this band called Just for Grins and we'd play there and I'd play every week. And for weeks and weeks, there'd always be this guy sitting in the back at the bar. Finally, I just went up to him and said, hey, dude, how you doing? What are you? <laughs> nice to meet right. you, whatever. And it happened to be the drummer from Supertramp, Bob Siebenberg. And then years later, when I was actually out with Diana Ross, I got a call uh, to um, for that band. And I flew home on my my uh, to do an audition on the um, on my day off while we were in Vegas. And I got the gig and that's kind of how that happened. So you just, it just comes from strange places, you know? It's kind of like the heyday of the rock sax players back then, you know? Yeah. It's like more and more in the, especially in the eighties, saxophone was used a lot more in like rock songs. Oh yeah. Like I mean, you know, guys like Tom or... Scott and Tom Scott was my, one of my mentors and heroes, you know? So yeah, yeah saxophone had its time there for a while. Uh, and that's and kind now of for it's me. like nobody uses horns at all anymore it seems very little i mean i'm doing quite a few dates today these days and i put solos and stuff on records and but yeah it's just kind of a just a different time right you know everything now is all machines and you can fix everything and auto-tune everything and it's just you know it's a totally different world i mean i'll go in and put a solo on i'll put a couple you know i'll do a couple takes like oh that's good enough I said, well, we have it. I said, yeah, don't worry. And they'll come back and they'll flip it, twist it, freak it, make it. And they'll just turn it into something new. Right. And everybody's a right. robot now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like music is robot. My wife's a music teacher and she's just hates auto tuning with like a passion. And oh she yeah. Like it's, it's... Always pointed out when she hears it on television and. Oh, well you hear these things, these live performances and then the vocals are like perfect. <laughs> like everything is like it's like how do they do it's like it sounds like it's a, a high lows record or something where the pitch is exact everything is like perfect and it sounds like wow you're going like that but then it's like loses all the that bit of soul that happens you know because it's those uh you know those uh, uh lovely mistakes that happen that make things that really you know when especially in music and you know that's why i think when you listen to all the great records you know the, you know, the stones and the Beatles and, you know, Floyd and all that, all those old records, it was, you know, we had to you had to make them a lot different in those days. You know, you had to make, you yeah. had to commit, you had to make a commitment and say, that's it. And then you move on. You couldn't go back and fix everything. That's why I always say that the most dangerous uh, button on the recording console is the solo button, because then when you solo it and you actually hear what happened, you're like, Oh, I got to fix that. And then you start whittling. So you go back and you start fixing it. And then you start to realize you've, you've completely mixed out all the, the soul and the passion and the uniqueness of what was there because you've made it so perfect now. So, so you're saying this is like the age of soullessness in music, like there's uh... well, 
you know, everyone's I, dead in their eyes. Well, it's it's there's just a lot of the pop music is that way, mm -hmm. I feel. Whereas, you know, I think right now there's, I mean, YouTube, I mean, the incredible musicians that are out there. I mean, some of these kids that you're seeing, you know, five, six, seven years old playing like the masters. And you're like, holy cow, how does that even happen? Uh, definitely makes you think a little bit more about reincarnation because there's just no way some of these kids can have that kind of soul and time and passion and attack the notes the way they do unless it's coming from someplace else it's just when i hear these auto-tuned like modern pop songs all i hear is a uh, tweaky from buck rogers that little robot <laughs> it always sounds ridiculous to me it's like <laughs> sounds terrible i know it's crazy even though they're in tune, technically they're good singers, but it sounds horrible to me. I just turn off the radio, you know, I don't even want to hear it for a second. Yeah, there's just something uh, about I, a real I have a, I have a feeling that the pendulum is going to swing back. I think we've pretty much reached the end of, of that. And I think a lot of some of the, at least some of the music that I've seen on YouTube, and like you said, I think it, it seems like we're kind of, you know, getting driven back to where, you know, people's raw unmodulated voice is what you want is what right. we, we crave now um because uh while autotune is sort of what autotune has done to music facebook is kind of done to society and it's just i think i think it's going to start <laughs> to swing the other direction oh my god we go into that whole thing have you guys seen social dilemma yet yeah yeah, yeah right talk about, it shit. talk about it man i mean if you just i mean it, this is crazy what's going on right now i mean yeah. this is like one of the most amazing moments i've ever seen i mean this is we we can get into that i mean this is something i'm following really close and it's a whole nother world right now what's going on it's it's pretty uh yeah i think we're gonna i think things are gonna start think there's gonna be some interesting times coming up i'll just leave it at that i think we must just so had like a scab getting peeled off like for the last four years like very slowly the whole time is what's been happening it's like more and more we've seen like what's underneath the skin of america big time. and now we're feeling itchy yeah. i mean that's one thing that's been exposed you can right? get a cream for that greg we this the whole system has been exposed now like we've never seen before no yeah oh yeah, yeah. so many no, systems big time lots of systems big <laughs> systems that go worldwide if you're really paying attention what's going on worldwide right now, it's pretty fascinating time i think we're going to see i think there's going to be an amazing awakening that's my all I can say. I, I just believe we're about ready to see something very special. Well, you said you're, you're a big student of consciousness. Is this mm -hmm. what you were talking about before? So I'm, I expound on that a little bit. What do you mean? Well, it's my favorite subject. And I always do. So now you get to get because I put this in every interview. I always talk about this. Go for it. So the first thing is, is, you know, imagine this. I mean, it just this is a fundamental fact. The only thing that is real is us talking right now. Everything okay. else is an illusion. Everything. Because two minutes ago, you, it's only a thought, right? Two minutes from now, it's only a thought. So the only thing that's actually real is what we're doing it right at this specific time. And there's only one moment. It's always the same moment. There can't be two moments. How right. can I can't get up and walk over there and it's a different moment. Yeah. The moment, it's always the same moment. It deepens, right? But when you start to realize that all of our suffering and our insanity is because we identify with thoughts in our head that aren't even real. 
They're just thoughts, right? We do this all day long. We either put our attention in the past. Oh, this person did me wrong. I can't let go. Oh, I'm going to drive myself crazy every day because of what happened to me 10 years ago. And I can't let it go because that memory is in my head. When in reality, it's just an illusion. You can't touch it. You can't change it. You can't do anything. And then other people, they suffer because of the future, oh, they, they had their goals, but now their goals aren't happening the way they thought they were. Suffer, suffer, suffered. And the truth is, it's just there. So you can see people sitting here like, you could be suffering right now, like just intense by just thinking about all this stuff that's crazy. But in reality, I'm sitting here drinking a glass of water, talking to you guys on the phone. So my whole thing is, as I see just from a planetary place point of view is, you know, what's going on right now is really not, it's really what I call the human condition, because we are now being basically manipulated in a sense, like if you saw what's going on with social dilemma, the algorithms basically can, can, can use, you know, behavioral science basically to kind of manipulate people to think and believe things that are real. We're even even seeing things that are that are like, you can take facts, something, an actual hardcore fact and put it up in front of somebody that's a totally against it. And they'll just say, it's not, it's not real. So they're calling your facts an illusion. It's, an all, it's, it's like, it's all biggest because it's what's happening is, is the kind of the manipulation that, that's going on. And when you see what's happening with the, the uh, all these social networks, because so, remember whoever controls the media and whoever controls the algorithms wins. Right. <laughs> Because yeah. you could take and move a whole lot of people in all kinds of directions. And there, if, if you want to check it out, check out a very interesting, there's a documentary called Century of the Self. Century of the Self. Go look it up on YouTube. Fascinating. Yeah. It's a documentary from uh, the BBC, beautifully done. And it's about a guy named Edward Bernays, who probably most people don't know who he is. But Edward well, he made Bernays, a sauce, didn't he? Well, not the Bernays sauce. Maybe it uh. is. But he was the uh, he was the kind of the father, the grandfather of changing the word propaganda to public relations. So he took to change it to PR. And he was the guy that basically him and Sigmund Freud, which was his uh, relative, they developed the whole idea of how to control crowds. And if you go watch this documentary, it'll blow your mind because then you kind of look at where we are right now and you kind of go, huh? Oh. Imagine all this horsepower of, of automation bots being able to feed information to you that wants to be funneled, you can basically get to the point where you just start believing things. You know, it's marketing, right? It's really just a form of marketing. Right? There's another out there called the big hack, which is more about the Cambridge Analytica thing. Big you know, and basically those guys can pick the next president if they want to. You hire them, chances are you're going to be president. Oh, no question. Oh. I mean, it's what they can do. There's no question. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, Greg, how much money you got? Let's do it. Let's make it happen. You're nah. president. You don't want to be president, brother. That's nah, like, ooh, that's a tough gig right there. You don't want me president. That's more like it. Yeah. <laughs> I love to be president. Yeah, but if yeah. this would put the proof in the pudding. If those guys could actually do what you said they can do, you hire them, they could make you president, Greg. They could. If I had the money, I bet they could. Let's find the money. Let's do it. Actually, they can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. They need at least like a, a nice ear. I'm too much ear to be a silk purse like a president. So they, you have to have some basic thing like, oh, this person's re uh, respectable, you know, whatever. You got to have some, so, right? Oh, yeah, well, fine. I, I'm, I'm actually Put qualifiers on it then, Greg. Fine. I think it's a lot less, actually, if you see how our elections are being done right now. You're right. That's true. <laughs> 
Yeah, we definitely had a sow's ear for a while there. Right. And they, actually, it was a combination of silk purse and sour's ear. They yeah. basically put a silk lining within the sour the sow's ear is what happened. And even the silk lining was shitty. The what? <laughs> the silk lining was very good either. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, kind of going kind of going back to what you were saying, Scott. I, I've always sort of thought that, you know, a lot of people, if they would just look at their thoughts, that inner dialogue in their head as really just a shitty roommate like a crazy person that you live with that you can't get rid of you can you can tell them to shut up you can or a tell relative them, yeah but however you want to describe it but yeah. but it really boils down to that and 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 that's the unfortunate nature of i think what we deal with as humans is there's this crazy person that lives in your head and you just got to get them to shut up or at least realize that they're crazy. Well, that's the first know, point. That's... Remember, because again, if you take, so I, I believe there's nothing more important than that inward journey. I mean, that's really where you kind of discover who you are, what you're really about, what it is, that, that, that thing. And what you first thing that you realize as you start going through that is there's the watcher and there's the thinker, right? And that's the point is I'm the watcher. Am I the watcher or the thinker? And most of the people are, are identified with thinking so much, their thoughts, that that's what's driving them. The movie in their head is as real as it can be. But it's really that voice in the background that says, you know, that's don't do that, do this. Because remember, your your mind is incapable. It's not capable of knowing truth from falsehood, right from wrong. It's not your mind you're thinking. And I can prove that simply. If it was true that your mind could know right from wrong, there would be no war. Nobody would pick up a gun or blow up anybody because, you know, anybody in their right mind would know that that's not a good thing to do. So the mind is incapable. Right. But what it is, is that's that voice you talk about in the background is really the one that makes the decisions, right? It's the one that, that looks and says, you know, that's a good idea. That's a bad idea, kind of deciphers it. And that's that conscious level. So the, the, what you're talking about is like kind of one of the first thing is to identify that those the two voices. And then when the first, the first, once you go get that first aha, you kind of go, Huh? Are there two of me? Right. It's kind of like if you get a sandwich that's made with like a donut. So you if you have you cut the donut in half and you put ham and cheese in the middle of it, you go, is it a treat or is it actually a sandwich? And you have to make that decision. It's kind that's of right. like a similar thing. I get very much, very similar. Perfect. But, but yeah, I, and all the great I, thinkers have used that analogy, actually. I think I, I, know, you, I noticed that. Part, I've never really heard anyone encapsulate the non-duality of consciousness as a as a sandwich analogy. That's that's good. So is it a sandwich? Is it not a sandwich? Or is it a donut? Or is it a donut? Yeah, no, yeah. I get yeah. it. I get it. But you know, Scott would be the expert on this because he was raised with 20 donut franchises. 26. 26. I'm sorry. 26 donuts. And I was a master donut cooker. My I remember when I was a kid, I was in junior high school when this was going on. And never say that too fast though. No, no. Yeah. I remember my dad would wake me up because I was such a good donut. I, I I learned how to cook donuts. I was like the best donut cook guy, right? And my, we would, my dad had all these shops and the catering guys would be showing up at 6 a.m. in the morning to get filled up to take their catering trucks out. And there'd be all the time the, uh, the, the guys that were cooking the donuts, many of them were drunks. <laughs> Unfortunately, they were, they were like, they the wouldn't case. show up. They wouldn't show up. My dad come wake me up. All the damn drunk donut makers. <laughs> they are. So he'd wake me up in the in the middle of you know like three thirty in the morning. Said, "Oh my God, the the guy didn't show up to cook donuts. Can you do it?" And he'd drive me out to one of the stores, and I'd cook and make all the donuts, and then go to school the next day. So yep. these guys were so drunk they put ham and cheese in the middle of the donuts. Probably. <laughs> yeah, so that's drunk. right. 
That's where that, you're doing chicken and waffles now, right? Chicken and waffles are great. Yeah, I think that's where that it's time to make the donuts thing comes from. It's just the drunk guy going, it's time to make the donuts. Oh, yeah. Those guys like to drink and hang out. That was for sure. So when your tour was over with Pink Floyd, did you think you could fall back on making donuts again at that time? That's when you went into the video game business, though. Well, actually, you know, it was funny. When I first took the gig, I knew I was going out for two years with Floyd. So the first, all I've thought about through that two years, or at least focused on, was what I was going to do the day after it was over. Mm-hmm. So I really pre-planned kind of everything so that I knew that I could walk out, get home on Friday, take the weekend off, and I'd be up and running by Monday. So that was my, that was my goal. Um, and I had actually had a company. Oh, sorry. Continue. No, I was going to say I have a company at the time called Walt Tucker. Uh, that I was part of having to get up and leave. So part of my deal with Floyd was, is they would let me use the the uh, uh, production office to make phone calls back to Los Angeles so that I could do business because we didn't have cell phones and we weren't connected like this. And so, uh, but yeah, I was always, I was always focused on, you know, what, what's going to happen next. And that's kind of one of the things I, I teach startup and stuff. And one of the things I tell everybody is like, you know, there's no reason the day you get out of school, you should be work. You go home on Friday, you take a couple of days, say school was great. And Monday you're at work, right? Because with, especially today with all the connectivity and the things that we have, you can basically pre-plumb everything, get ahead of the game. You can, you know, you've got the 24 hour cocktail party with Twitter and stuff, and you can meet people and build things. And like, I believe this is right now, this is as an entrepreneur, I'm on my fourth company. This is probably the most exciting entrepreneurial time I've ever seen in my life. It's just incredible. The amount of opportunities because of all the, all the problems that have happened. I mean, we've got so many problems that need to be solved right now. It's like a heyday for the entrepreneur. I mean, there's like tons of things you can do. It's crazy. And especially with these things, if you think about it, dude, everything, everything came together here. Bandwidth, storage, and horsepower all the bands I mean, we were always fighting bandwidth and we connectivity was a problem and storage was a problem and you know the horsepower of these things was a problem and now i've got this worldwide broadcast network in the palm of my hand i can build my own audience i don't need anybody and i can take the order right. somebody can pay me direct dude this is like the heyday and i got a worldwide audience i i can start a worldwide stream right here on my telephone and go to town i just need to figure out how to build that audience and create value right and then you too could cause a riot in the capital i could we could (laughs) yeah the fake riot let's start this is how it was used (laughs) how it it happened a handheld device so i I wanted to kind of get into the the late 90s with you so you created you were a co-founder of the company seventh level which is i see on your your back wall there and i actually owned the game monty python's complete waste of time oh that was one of my favorite things uh that was it you know that was to me you know my seventh level was really my thing i started that with uh and met then george grayson who was the uh ceo that time of micrographics and then i brought brob ezrin came in a little later uh who was you know produced all the Pink Floyd records and, you know, one of the top producers around. And uh, we started seventh level because I saw the whole concept of, of interactive. I was real quick story. We've got a minute left. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I was, uh, I had done my first CD-ROM in 1990 and it was called Music Bites. And what it was, was it was uh, 
music for uh, computer users because there was no music at that time that you could bring in for presentation. So if you were trying to do a, a PowerPoint presentation, there was no audio. So we developed this thing called Music Bikes, which was all files in a specific way. You could put it in your computer and you could use music for that. So we were myself and, and I put together kind of an, an all-star group of great players to do this thing. And Jeff Baxter from the Doobies and myself uh, were uh, in Las Vegas at Comdex, uh, which was the biggest trade show in the world at the time. It became CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, and we were sitting there and we were demoing our product. We were playing in the booth. And, you know, at the time it was a pretty big deal because I was in between, um, uh, you know, I just finished playing with, uh, you know, Floyd and all that stuff. And we, you know, it was a big deal. We were on, uh, at that time because it was the biggest tour in the world and we were there playing. And I looked across the room and I saw something on the screen and I went up to it and it was this title called Just Grandma and Me. And it was for five-year-old kids, three to five-year-old kids. And the idea was, it was the first time I saw you click on something and it actually animated, right? We click and boom, something happened. And I was like, whoa, this is the future. And at that time I had been working on developing a thing I called visual sound where I was using zooming microphones that hooked up to MIDI based tripod systems so that when you zoomed into the artist, you actually hear the sound pressure less or you bring that sound up to make it feel like you're more like you were standing there. So I was experimenting in that and I saw the computer and I said, stereo speakers right here, this thing interactive saw my future. And so that's where I just started really going wholehearted into that. And I was hanging out in the, what were they called the cyberpunk scene back in the day with actually Timothy Leary was part of that group of us. And we were all Thomas Dolby and Todd Rundgren, myself, were kind of the music guys that were early oh, yeah, on. Rundgren was like very instrumental in the early days of CD-ROMs and right. creating music with CD-ROMs. Yeah. So yeah. that all of us were kind of the early founders of all of that. And so I saw this thing. I met George Grayson uh, and we started this thing seventh level. And I didn't, and my, my favorite claim to fame for myself is that I, I basically uh, directed and produced co-produced actually the world's first interactive cartoon, which was fascinating because we had to build all the technology, the engines to run animation on top of windows, 386, 25 megahertz machines with four mega Ram where Windows was eating up two and a half mega RAM. So you had one and a half uh, <laughs> meg to oh, build animation. I remember animation. those days well. <laughs> oh yeah, so, so we were pioneering in those days. And then the next thing we did, we started Seventh Level and it was, uh, it was cool. We were able to take that company public and then I got to do the whole Monty Python series. So I, I got to work and produce on all of those, but complete waste of time was uh was an was a an amazing thing for us at the time you know working with the pythons i ended up working with the pythons for about 18 years all the way through we did a python line so we built out all of that stuff out and so you know work with those guys a lot all right well that brings I, us directly into our client for today and oh. our client so this is where we hijack you so <laughs> the client is monty python snake now when i say monty python snake that's really you know the the global constriction that Monty Python has had upon us all in terms of those of us who are, happen to be fans of Monty Python. So we're going to let you let your hair down a little bit, not mullet hair down, but you know, your current hair to whatever That's level you wanted to get down to where you can just talk about being a fan of like Monty Python and the parts of Monty Python that you find. The, I mean, like what got you to choose them for your video game? I mean, well, there had to be something that attracted you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, so Bob Ezrin, when we started seventh level, Bob had worked with Eric Idle and the Pythons 
a bunch through the years. And as we were looking at what next title from Toonland, our interactive cartoon, we said, what would be the next franchise? And we realized that Monty Python was really big amongst the technical people and stuff. Because you remember back in those days, you know, the gaming side of things, especially on, on Windows machines and computers was really started out to be DOS, you know, right. those were my own DOS games. And then we started, then, then Windows came along and that's when we did Toonland because we had to build all the engines and it was, you know, Bill Gates used to hold up Toonland and say, see, Windows is a great multimedia platform because it was horrible for multimedia in those days, but we were, we were working on it. And so Bob, we talked about it and George, my, one of my partners was a big fan of Python. And, and we knew that all the engineers and the technical people and the first kind of the people that were, were playing with computers and stuff in those days and tied to that would love there's just that a, a bunch of those people love Monty Python. There's just something about the technical computer geeky community that really loves Python. You right? think they it's, like were slapping each other with fish a lot whenever they were working on the it's computers? It's crazy. And... So, so we decided, we thought that'd be great. So Bob basically set that up and we went out and, uh, you know, produced that when that was a, and that, that particular title was the one that got us to go public. Uh, we used that. We had done Toonland and uh, we had basically were raised our first round of money on a dancing broom, believe it or not, because we had a dancing broom running under windows and we ran around to all kinds of investors and people and we got them to believe that we could create something cool with that. So we did that. And then the second thing was then we went and started doing Monty Python. So I worked really close, you know, with, with, you know, a lot, mostly with Eric Idle a lot. Eric was yeah. kind of the main and some Terry Gilliam uh, bunch. And then uh, one of my favorite humans on the entire planet, uh, John Goldstone, who is the producer. And he's been working with Python since the beginning, did all the movies. He's like their main creative or, or product, uh, uh, content managed production guy right because he built all that stuff he also produced and put together the rocky horror picture show was his other wow. claim to fame but john wow. golds i have to give a shout out to john because this guy is without a doubt one of the most beautiful humans i've ever met in my life the guy is my hero i love him to death um anyway so we uh we ended up doing that title with them and that was fascinating because we had to go in and rotoscope everything out of all the movies and you know actually i just found giant boxes of those one you know those uh big one inch video i mean uh video uh, digital video tape like those mm -hmm. things as we transferred it all and then we had to do i mean that was a massive gig pulling all that stuff up and then designing a game around it but it was just that it was about complete waste of time well i know uh, when i was buying it that i was pretty much since that was the title of it i knew what i was getting yes and I was yes. like, okay, so this is going to be a game that's probably not going to like have any satisfying ends to it. No, no, it was just, it was just a crazy journey through everything and actually a crazy story. So here we are, we've now, we've spent a year plus, whatever it was, a year plus building this title, our team, you know, we, our company at that time was maybe 20 people and we were just, it was all engineers and people and we were outsourcing everything and we were killing. We had to get this thing out the door because we had to. Um, uh, yeah, to meet like the Christmas. Uh, we'll make, yeah, we had to meet the dates, but it was also about us going public and meeting everything because our all of our financing, everything was based on that. And so we were working. I was in te in Texas because that's where a lot of the team was. So I'd fly back and forth and I'd be over there. And I remember one night, man, the last night we're we're ready to do you know our our production master right, finish it up. 
everything. And they put the, the we get the note from the, uh, you know, the, the head engineer says, okay, we're locked. Can't make any more changes. Cause you know, you make a change, you can break things. Right. So we're sitting there and I'm watching the thing and I'm looking through it and I'm going, yeah, I don't know if you remember in the game, the pinball, the pinball oh. thing in the columns, there was the columns and it was like a pinball game and you had to get through it. And Let's pretend um, like I do. All right. So anyway, this section, so I, I'm going through it, finally testing it. And they left the audio file out for the, Oops. for the, uh, for the, uh, 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 or somehow it got for like the sound check. effects of the pinball, the pinball game. and stuff. And so when it happened, it was like, Oh, this is horrible. So I went to one of the engineers and I said, dude, I know we pushed, we locked this down. Dude, I, dude, I can't live with this. I mean, I put this thing together. This would be the worst to go in here and play this game. And there's no sound and all this stuff. Can you just go drop that file in? And he says, okay. So he snuck in and he, dropped and put the little piece in and added it in broke the entire game <laughs> we we here we're getting ready to go to this thing and i'm serious they went and they mastered it and it was they thought they had the final master and it was broken dude i got my butt chewed out like you cannot even believe so you're one of the founders so who chewed you out my other founders, <laughs> my actually, cause I, my, he, George was the CEO. I was executive vice president. Bob was president. And uh, so it was, uh, I got a rude man. I was beat up. Like you can't even believe because it cost a ton of money and backed us all up. And, but then you at that point go, I was a sax player for Pink Floyd, man. You can't talk to me like this. Yeah. Well, Bob Ezrin was the producer for Pink Floyd and he'd say, shut up. Slap <laughs> you. Get back in your cage, monkey. <laughs> Did you ever get to play music with Neil Innes? Is that how you say his name? The Monty Python musical director? Well, Neil I knew Lynn? Neil. I knew Neil back more, not so much from that period of time, but for uh, later on when they were doing um, uh, later stuff, when we were doing Python line, and building out all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I knew Did you ever get to be like part of a sketch yourself? I know. I, no, I never was a part of a sketch though. I do have someplace and I want to find it. Cause I, when I was demoing, when, when I, when I did Python line and stuff, I built this company uh, called new media broadcasting. And we were, I was demoing this, this, this um, product we built called Mashcast to Eric Idle. And we were here and I swear to God, it was so funny. We kind of got into a skit back and forth and I felt it was like my Monty Python's guy. I wish I could find it because it was just, it was like, I got to do this with Eric Idle. And it was just after knowing Python, we went into this whole thing and I wish I could find it. But That's yeah, like he, a jam with Hendrix or something. Oh, I know. And it's That's so awesome. funny because because I got all these tapes and, you know, Eric, I'd always go up to Eric and I, oh, Eric, can you just give me one? Because, you know, when you're doing interactive, it's you've got all these branches, right? It's not just a linear thing that you go to top to bottom because if the person goes this way, something else happens. And so there's a lot, it's very complex when you start thinking in a three-dimensional kind of space on how the audio and which direction the person goes, what, what sound they get, what's going on. And so we were doing, a, he was, he was always, I would always call him up. I go, Eric, you know, cause I need one more thing. Eric, I need one more thing. Can you just give me one more thing? So he basically wrote this song about me asking him for one more thing, uh, which I had on my, my phone, was on my phone for, for a long time, my answering machine years ago when we had answering machines, but it's just great. But yeah, no, I, I loved working with Eric. He's, he's a very fascinating guy. I mean, all those guys, I mean, genius. Did you ever get to use one of his lines against him? Like, did you, when you tried to get this out of him, did you go nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, say no more to get your... Uh... 
Uh, we, you know, we would put, there would be things like that. There would be definitely stuff like that that would be kind of fun. But, uh, you know, he's a very serious guy, too. I mean, he's funny as can be, but very serious, too. Well, he, uh, he knows when to walk that demarcation line between funny and drama. Oh, yeah. He's so, a great uh, writer, too, Eric Idle. I love so were his... you a Python fan? I, not at the time. Okay. I wasn't really. I became one more after. I mean, I, I was. I like Monty Python. I would. Okay. I never really. For me, English humor really was a little rough. I never really quite got it until actually I started working with him all those years. Then I, then it made sense to me. And then he yeah, obviously became a fan after that. I gotcha. Okay, so that makes this makes sense. You hadn't really heard of Pink Floyd, so you're basically anti-British, really. Is I was anti-British. I didn't mean yeah. it. I didn't mean it. I didn't, hate- like the Be- I didn't like the Beatles when I was a kid either. I can't believe how stupid I was. because You I have thought- like Anglophobia or something. She loves you, pimp, pimp, yeah. I'd be like, okay, <laughs> no, I don't get this at all, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm too smart. I'm too, I'm too intellectual. I know better than that goofy music, right? Oh, boy, did I, did I look back at myself and say, what an idiot I was. <laughs> <laughs> so you like uh, were against Pink Floyd. Well, not against it, but you just weren't aware to the yep. point of when you wanted to become more aware. And yep. Python was really got immersed in it so from the pattern i can see here it sounds like you want to be part of our podcast on a regular basis there you go you know it's like you didn't really know about us beforehand although we're not british so that kind of works against us in that case what happened happened? (laughs) you should know better i could talk british if you like that'd be fine let's do that (laughs) that's good so once you got into Python, so what, what was there a sketch that kind of rang closer to your funny bone along the way? You know, Gosh. I mean, I mean, I've got a ton myself because I've watched basically every episode of Monty Python. You know, but... it's just I mean, I I was so immersed in so much of it because we broke down, you know, because there's only like I think it's like 40 television shows and what a half a dozen, one, two, three. Let me see. What are they? I got them up here. Well, there's the three main movies and they three had a main couple movies of lesser and like 40 movies. shows. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really it. Other than Faulty Towers, right? right? Right. But that's it, and it's so amazing because they—I mean, I always kid John Goldstone because they've taken repurposed that stuff so many times. They've turned it into box sets. They've turned it into you know, you know, the re-released and some little things that they find. I mean, they've been selling that thing over and over and over again for all these years, and it's basically forty television shows and uh, three movies. Yeah, going that's back it. like. 45 years something like that yeah and they still do these big you know christmas they just repackage it up in new ways and add a little bit of something new and resell it again so there's got to be one that sticks out for you where you went okay this this was funny to me personally i'm trying to think something that just like captured your imagination in some way whether it was the ministry of funny walks or the dead parents of course uh, of course, Silly Walks was always great. I mean, the Dead Parrot sketch is is always good. Is, is great. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, it's crazy. We actually, when a funny thing we did, this is interesting. It was forty. It was it was Monty Python's fortieth anniversary. So I did a big. Uh, I decided to do an event. We did a. Um, we were doing a fundraiser for Feeding America, and so I created this thing called Silly Walks for Hunger. <laughs> and what we did is we set up. I had like was it 500 plus dancers. We rehearsed for five nights at Universal City Walk and in studios. And I worked with top choreography at first. And we did a Silly Walks for Hunger flash mob at Universal. And we took over the entire City Walk. 
as long as as far as it was. And this thing went down. It was eight minutes. People jumped out. And it was this massive thing. But it was crazy cool because uh, these incredible choreographers that do Michael Jackson and all that guys named Rich and Tone developed this whole Silly Walks uh, um, dance thing that was fantastic. And we did that to walk this way. You're right. We did that song. Oh, and yeah. We, and then we had uh, we did a, actually Michael Jackson record. We were doing it to. Uh, whatever that one of the michael jackson tune and just that day that's what it was called yeah i can't remember uh the that day just before we do it they said we couldn't use the song and we were like oh so luckily so luckily rich and tone we rehearsed everybody they had been working with madonna a lot and so they went to madonna and madonna gave us a song with uh justin timberlake they did a duet and we took that song and we luckily the tempo was pretty much the same and they danced to that and we were able to make it happen that night but did you yeah. play i'm walking by fats domino i didn't but i love fats domino me too i love fats domino man he's one of the greats you know sam cook is another one one of my all-time faves you know yeah Actually, okay. speaking of Jackie Fats Domino, not meaning to go off on too much of a tangent, my wife is actually, uh, like I said, a music teacher, and she was trying to find the perfect Fats Domino song to teach the elementary school kids. I had mentioned Blueberry Hill, but is there one that you think would be oh. as appropriate being like the big fan of Fats Domino that you are? Well, I am a fan, but I, don't, you know, I just, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't really think of songs as much like this particular Fats Domino song. I just uh -huh. like Fats Domino for all the stuff that he did. Right. Got it. I can't think of the songs. You know, I'm, I'm first of all, I'm horrible with titles and <laughs> I mean, I can't remember names of songs or, you know, it's funny, even though people go like, you know, I played with Seals and Croft and if I had to go play those songs now, I couldn't play them again. I wouldn't even have a clue. I played them for years and I could not remember any of it. I just, my brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> I'm pretty ADD. I kind of but move on. I let the sounds like you're more of a big boom. picture guy, right? So it's like I'm a you, big picture guy. whether you're whether you're more gestalt, you're a gestaltist, I suppose, would be a better. Yeah, well, you know, I've learned I've I've learned through the years that you know, again, being a being in the business space, that you know, one of the big questions you have to ask yourself, and I always ask this of every entrepreneur that I'm out when I work with them and stuff, I say, well, are you a starter or a finisher? Right. Because there's some people that like are great. Asking, are you a fluffer or are you? <laughs> well, I mean, a starter I, like me, I, my job is I'm the killer starter. I'm as good a starter as anybody on the planet. I mean, I, because I get the idea, I get the stuff, I can go out and get it, get it rolling, but I need the finisher to be able to hand it off and say, okay, I got this rolling, but now you got to go help make this happen because I, I'm not going to sit there on spreadsheets. I'm not going to sit there and lay out all that stuff. That's not my thing. So yeah, being as I'm a, I'm, starter or finisher it's very important yeah so what's the i mean i'm kind of getting out of our client so monty python we've given you short shrift i'm sorry we but you, i'm going to move python. back into this question of uh so what is the next thing on your horizon what's the next on your oh. agenda that you're starting well so what's happened is i have a company called think experience and it's an immersive entertainment company because i saw that you know you can't make money as a you can't sell music anymore there's no place to sell music you can't yeah. it, it, you know you got streaming services but that model is business model is horrible for most musicians you know it's basically a, you know a million streams will pay you someplace between four and five thousand dollars but the problem is is only uh you know uh only three or four percent of the entire spotify catalog even reaches a million streams right so uh they're the hits they get the big ones but then a lot of the other people so there's really no money in that so i realized that the real dollars is in is really where's where's the money going right now and people pay will pay for experiences so we i started think experience with the idea of creating immersive the new where the 
where the trends were going were experiences. And we had actually just finished with, I have, I have a band out of Think Experience called Think X, which is myself, Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, Kenny Olds from Kid Rock's band, Nord Fisher from Fishbone. And it's a kind of a pseudo, what I'll call all-star band, great players. And so well, we just Stephen did Stephen Perkins, I think we've got booked in a few weeks. Oh, you got actually. Perkins coming. Good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's great. You'll love, you'll have a great time with Perk. He's a great great guy amazing drummer and talent and just uh he'll be a great interview too he's really good at that um well tell so him we, you said uh, that we just did yeah please i want to make sure he keeps playing drums with me right uh so uh we'll say, scott page said you're a horrible human being and said never to talk to him again <laughs> actually he's amazing i mean he's one of my favorite drummers now i mean he's so musical and uh plays different than anybody i've ever played with actually he's a very interesting player um but we just finished 40 shows in an in a 360 degree immersive dome just Wait, before you you, oh just before covid I was right say. before covid okay. and uh and then uh we were getting ready to have that was we were doing that in the 360 dome where you're laying in these chairs sitting back and just fully immersed in the visuals and we were doing a think floyd show so we so were this like a floyd. laser type thing you said it's in a dome so are you using well like we had a... lasers we had everything but it's a 360 right. visual dome so you know okay. like the you can think about you know those uh uh, uh, shows that they do in the in the um, you know the space you know the IMAX. like observatories and observatories where yeah, but yeah. you're 360 degrees so this here is it's almost like a shared VR experience because when you look up you don't see anything but you're inside that thing so we it was so cool. it's like a VR planetarium it's like a planetarium kind of yeah. a show but we're doing live Floyd in this cool thing and we sold out 40 shows it was incredible. And we were going to then get ready for the new year. And we had, we were going ready to do jazz fest this year in New Orleans. We we're going back to Europe. We had this whole thing ready to rock and roll. We were putting in, uh, partnered up with a company out of Montreal to do a, a big show. We partnered and we were putting up a 1600 seat immersive dome in, in Long Beach at the Queen Mary, the most advanced immersive theater in the world. We had it up here at the, at the in Pasadena for a couple months. And so we were getting ready to do that and everything fell through. So when that happened, I got up in the morning. I said, well, back to my whole thing. The only thing's Muriel here is me here drinking my glass of water and I'm sitting here and everything stopped. But then I went, you know what? Always inside of chaos, there's incredible opportunities. So I started to really take a look at where is it, where is it gonna go now? Because you could see what was happening. And we obviously were seeing that this type of real-time two-way is, is the game right now. That's where the, the, where the exciting part is, I believe. And so I started putting together an idea and I partnered up with a couple other guys, a big time marketing guy and another guy that comes out of AR, VR and technology. And we started developing and we're getting ready to launch uh, 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 sort of a, what I would call an interactive broadcast experience business uh, where it's, think of it this way, it's a combination of a live show, but it's going to be probably for a while, we're not going to have thousands of people in spaces, but more of a premium space, smaller audience. Uh, and then it goes to uh, live streaming, but it's really working on the aspects of the two-way aspect. It's not just the one-way stream, it's the back channel. So it's how do I bring fan in stream? I can bring fans into our show through using this technology. And then the third thing is, is uh, delivery service. Because I can't hand you something through the screen, 
but I could deliver you something. So an example is we could have done our show today. And if I was doing the show and my sponsor, I might've had my sponsor ship you the, the beverage or whatever it is. And then we can kind of share it in a space. So I, I started thinking about, well, that to me is kind of the new frontier. Um, obviously like Wonka vision. Yeah. It's like a T yeah. I mean, we're, people want experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. We now have a, we can now interact in real time globally, like we never could before. And we have all this new other technologies, the way to produce shows and the cost has come down dramatically so that anybody can kind of get in the game. So we're launching Livin, that's L-I-V-N dot live, Livin dot live, which is this new concept around those three things, a premium live, high-end kind of VIP experience live show, uh, We've got real unique ways. I've actually filed for two patents on how to bring fans in the streams, uh, make them be part of the show, even though they're on a video or someplace bringing them in and making them part of the show. It's kind of like um, a VR Zoom chat type it's not, thing? It's, we're, it, we're not really, VR is one thing, Yeah. but this is really using more, uh, using Zoom-like technologies, in other words, because we want to bring people in their videos. We want to be on their mobile phones and all of that stuff, but we have a very unique strategy or a way to, to bring these people that are on these devices into our live show. Well, so, so I was thinking is like, if you could have like a VR type thing where you could make the person you're talking to almost three dimensional, if you're wearing the, I guess the, the headset well, you can. or something. Sure. Yeah. There's things like you can do definitely. There's stuff like that. So you that. can bring you can your, your dome to everybody's house in a sense. Well, that's, and that's the idea. So what yeah. we do is we basically, you sign up, it's Friday night. We're going to do our living show. We have a pre-show. We have our show. We have after show. And uh, we ship a box that shows up at your house that is designed for if it's you or your family, a couple people, a party or whatever. And then now they can be part of the actual show. And so we do wine tasting in the beginning. We got sponsored wines and we do this whole thing where we're, we're bringing the fan into the stream. They get to kind of be a fly on the wall in the actual event, see it from a totally different perspective. And, um, and then uh, we do the show and then we have after show and that's all set of different premium style tickets. So people can have different tiers of being actually part of it. And then there's a whole series of, uh, of products and things that are built into the whole environment. Because again, you have to, how do you make money? You can sell the ticket, you can sell the premium tickets, and then you have- uh, Well, you're selling the products. box too, right? And the box is sold, yes, the box You need is to sold. make sure you have like rubber hands in the box. So they we have some rubber we do have rubber hands, depending for people on people to show. shake hands with, like they're pretending they're shaking hands with whoever the. Uh, That's right. The host is. Yep. Yep. Nice. Greg, so, you should have something like that at home too. Just a lot of rubber hands around you. Yep. No. 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 Yeah. Talk about I, rubber hands and Greg. No real hands here. Yep. My two hands work just fine, Matt. Yep. I don't need. <laughs> I think you guys should have a lecture on like um the dangers of the lizard people. And their pedophile ring. What? Hey, we, uh, what? That's funny you mentioned that. I just did that last night. <laughs> what? Are you we kidding me? Oh, the sheeple. The sheeple, man. They're out there. I'm telling you. Yeah. The dangers You're not of wrong the about lizard that. people. Who are? The, well, you know, Brendan brought up lizard people. I think last week or the week before. Did I? So, so you guys are getting this concept of lizard people from somewhere. So I'm missing this. I'm. I feel like I'm on the wrong um, news Dude. channel. Man, you, gotta not, look, you are on the wrong room channel. You're not you can't get news on the news channel anymore. You got <laughs> no. the P. You got to go find the people, man. It's the people's news right now. Is the lizard people's news? It's a lot. Yeah, you have to. You have to Google David Ike. Oh yeah, David's cool. 
David Ike, and you'll get the whole puppet. lizard people. Was um, he related to Eisenhower or no? No, no I C K E. Oh, like I K E. Icky. Be icky. Yeah. Icky. It still looks yeah. like Ike or something. But yeah, it's, it was he, a lizard. He goes person? by Ike. I think it goes by Ike. Yeah, he's. A, I think he does. Fascinating. He's a you know, it's interesting. Person. He's been a conspiracy theorist kind of guy for thirty plus thirty five something years, right? The problem uh, like is a, now like all of his ins- the part the interesting part now is he was right. This stuff is all coming out now. It's crazy. It's crazy Look, what's going on. Right? He you, was you, right. If you follow him, yeah. So there no, are lizard him. people. There's all yeah, shape shifting lizard people, yes. <laughs> Pizza Gate was real? No, I don't think oh. so. But that's a different thing. That's a whole different thing, right? Oh, it involved lizards thing. though. Yeah. I mean there's the point is, is there's a lot of things that, you know, he's been following the basically global, the globalist mod, mo, the globalist movement, right? Which is uh-huh. really, and if you look at it back from the, the power structures that started back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, those structures just keep moving forward and they kind of change, but there's still a lot of power in those areas. So he's been following a lot of that. And what we're doing is we're seeing a lot of I mean, a lot of what he's been talking about for years is actually happening right now in front of our eyes. I'm sure we're talking like New World Order and well, know, yeah. I mean, remember it's the globalists, it's Illuminati and the Rothschilds yeah. and the Trilateral but, you know, Commission, it, and all and that it stuff. sounds like before that used to sound like a big conspiracy theory, right? But now you're seeing with the central banks, and you start seeing because what's happened is the internet clearly has opened up a whole world of digital soldiers that are out there being able now to get into the dark web, get into places, and find all kinds of fascinating incredible content that you would never see anywhere else and yeah, it's the there, dark right? web I mean, sure you can hire oh, an dude, assassin to buy your drugs for you it's crazy yeah, well, there's always real conspiracies those are like the real conspiracies that i think is just i call that history you know it's history right i mean and, but then there's the conspiracies like QAnon type stuff which is just well that's terrible. fascinating that's fascinating because most people don't understand what that is. You know, I mean, I, I like, I, I like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to study and understand because there's just so much information. So when I started hearing about Q, what they were talking about, people don't really understand what that is, which is fascinating because they just, oh, it's a big conspiracy. Well, really what it is, is it started out, it's, well, there's two things. Q is, it's only Q. The Anons or the Anonymous are a different Thing. And I just read a book on this to try to learn how to try to understand it because I hear everybody because when they say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. The first thing I think is, I'm not sure it's a conspiracy theory because if these people are all telling me it's a conspiracy, they're all there must be a reason for that. Right. It all came from the character from Star Trek Q, right? Yeah. Well, Looks Q is, is in, in the, the whole idea of Q is it's one of the highest levels of the intelligence inside of our our government. Right. Q is that's who that is. It's a and designation the, of of. Uh... Top secret clearance. Top secret clearance and stuff. And then the Anons, which is anonymous, stands for anonymous, is really just the people, the digital people. And the whole movement of the whole Anon thing was is to, to, to um, basically expose crimes against humanity. Right. That's the big spreading the word of Q, which was uh, satanic, cannibalistic pedophiles or something. Well, no, no, that's not what Q is. Q is what they're doing is they're pointing to uh, all this information that's you can start looking at and it kind of makes you think, right? You know, you're kind of like, well, that makes no sense. (laughs) Well, that makes no sense. And you just keep going back and forth. You start whittling, but you start to see that there's, there's actually, it's fascinating because, you know, the whole idea is Q is feeding information, the anonymous, the, 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 the digital army. And people think Q is making predictions. Q does not make predictions. Q 
Q leaves clues. It's up to you to figure out what it is. So, so Q is blue. Yeah, there you go. Q is blue. So you have to figure it out because it's all in riddles. It's really fascinating. It's not riddles, but it's like in the way that it's written. Uh, if you follow it at all. And I, like I said, I just started going in there and started reading because I was so curious about it. And um, it's very it's a fascinating. Game between Bilbo Baggins and Gollum that they've gotten, you know, all the right wing up but, in arms about. Yeah, but what's so interesting about it is, is if you really look at what they've predicted and what they've done, not predicted, but what they've shown, they've actually been pretty right on in a lot of ways. I mean, they were a big part of what caught, you know, got the Epstein grab that whole Epstein thing that went down was came out of that community because of doing the work that they do of just research. It's just like an army of researchers out there finding everything they can. Sure. There's people that are goofy and they'll get in there and say certain stuff, but there's a lot of information. That so yeah, you know, Trump teams and he was a, fr fr a friend of Epstein and was kind of a, had some allegations of underage sex. Like you'd think they'd hate Trump if they're like brought down Epstein. It seems like they have a mixed message that they're sending out there. Well, remember, 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 there were certain people that, you know, which is coming out now, which you're seeing, right? You're seeing the, the cases that they just releasing all this information. Now, if you want to go read, you can read the court cases, read the, the testimonies and that stuff. It's pretty frightening. I mean, it's it's pretty unbelievable what you're seeing there. And it's now starting to unwind and it's implicating a whole lot of people at this moment. So what's up with the John Jr. being alive and cool. Yeah, you know, that's one I've heard, too. I have no idea. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, after reading all the stuff that I'm reading and watching what's going on with the news and hearing and looking at everything, it's like nothing surprises me anymore. They all live on a conium, Greg. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim they're Morrison, all JFK they're all Jr. Please. They're all hanging out on an island. Jimmy, come together. in. I, I brought Jimmy over. Jimmy, come over here for a minute. Elvis Presley. Elvis? Elvis? Where's Hitler, Elvis? There he Hitler's is. love child. <laughs> Do you, do you think the problem is, is that he speaks in riddles so people interpret it in different ways? Might be wrong. Might be the way that Q doesn't want them to Well, act. remember, part of it is, is too, is, which is interesting, is what's happened is where it's been wrong, at least what I found, is because the people misinterpret the, the sort of the clues. Yeah, that's in other words, they take, they take 11.3 and they think, oh, it's the date. It's the 11th, the third, but it's not. It ends up, it ends up showing and pointing to a document a document of 11.3. And then you read the document and you go, huh? how did that, how did they know that? How did they know that? That's what I keep getting. I keep getting, how did they figure that out? What, how did they know that? That's, that's the interesting part. It's like a giant, it's like a, it's like a movie. It's like trippy as crap to watch. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like a really giant, like RPG game. It's exactly, you know, it's, it's basically, it's really, um, it really is. It's, it's really game theory. The whole thing is like game theory. It's trippy. It's fascinating. And so essentially, like Monty Python's complete waste of time. Exactly. That's what it is as it well. It really is. It's like game <laughs> theory. It's like it's sucked everybody ball. into it. Kind of like, you know, what yeah. our podcast is about, essentially. Yeah. Is we're just a big waste yeah. of that. We really appreciate you coming on, Scott. It's been great talking with you. That was yeah. fun. That um, was a fun conversation, guys. I really I, enjoyed it. I, I'm still stunned that people like you are willing to talk to us and our three listeners and... uh you know, have this conversation. And well, if you we, have any openings later on for uh, three guys who really are doing who knows what else in the next, in the near mm -hmm. future. Actually, Brendan is the only real person in this podcast. The other, the, the two of us uh, on the other side are illusions, but. Um, 
That's it. I, I don't know, man. You could be doing a little wag the dog on me right now. I don't yeah, know. Maybe guys, right. You know, I, it's funny going watching that movie now after what, everything we've been seeing. Oh, go maybe watch, watch that. wag the dog and primary colors and put them together and maybe a little Dr. Strange love and you'll be in good shape. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it is fascinating to watch human behavior, though. I'll tell you. It's uh, well, sure. as I've said many times, everyone's crazy, and that's where it all lies. Everyone's crazy. Hallelujah. That's my theory of consciousness. Anyway, thank you again, Scott. Right, totally thank appreciate it. That was a fun conversation. We'll Thanks. Be glad to, if you have something new yeah. happening in the future, we'd be happy to have you on again if you want to put up with us. And sure, uh, sure, sure. We'll do it again. I, I don't mind. I love it. Yeah, and Eileen, you know how to get all Eileen. She'll she'll connect us up. Oh, I yeah, just she's great. She says, "Do this." I okay. I just go. I'm doing. I'm happy because <laughs> I'm meeting all kinds of cool new people. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Hey, you can help cool us end it. this by saying thanks, Maria. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, thanks Maria. Maria. Thank thanks, you, Maria. Maria. Thank you, Maria. This has been the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker Computer Telecast, where any advice has been designed purely for amusement and deep sea diving. Please take a candy on your way out, pet the lion tamer, and subscribe to this computer telecast if you know it's good for you. The law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker deny all culpability in today's events and are not to be confused with real law offices that have a secretary and books and stuff. Thank you all. Have a good day.